Welcome to episode 96. Today, Dr. Kate Seltzer joins us to talk about the Translanguaging Classroom. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. Have you ever heard of this statement? Once you have heard something, you can't unhear it. Well, I felt that way throughout this podcast episode with Dr. Kate Seltzer. In this episode, we talk about translanguaging, what it is and what it's not. The four benefits of translanguaging, why we should put the concept of home language into question, and removing the rigidity around languages. At the end of this episode, we talk about the translanguaging classroom space our instruction and assessments. Though we can't go deeply into these areas, they are teasers into reading her co-authored book, The Translanguaging Classroom. Now, on to today's podcast. If you know about translanguaging, then you know about Dr. Kate Seltzer. I am so honored to have another luminary in the field to talk about what translanguaging is and to give us another level and layer of it. So Dr. Seltzer, welcome to a a happy and excited community. Thank you so much, Tan. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. (laughs) It's always a pleasure to uh, dovetail your conversation to dovetail the conversation with Dr. Ophelia Garcia, with you, who's your co-author in the book. So let's start with this question. Uh, Can you please share an event that has informed your practice to this day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I got my start. I I became a teacher in uh, a small high school in uh, New York City. And I was a ninth and 10th grade English language arts teacher. Um, And all of my students pretty much were emergent bilinguals. And um, I learned how to be a teacher by teaching emergent bilinguals, even though I was an English teacher. And um, I actually taught my co-teacher. So I was the LA teacher and Nelson Flores was the ESL teacher. So we were co-teachers in this school. So he and I go way, way back. The Nelson and Flores. The Nelson Flores. Um, I knew him when. And um, <laughs> and we, we planned a project for our students um, that was based in an approach uh, called a multi-genre approach to writing. So, you know, students picked uh, a topic that they wanted to write about, and they wrote about that topic through a variety of different genres. So we did, you know, a, a genre study for each of the different pieces, and then they could choose the genres that they wanted to teach in. And of course, we encouraged them to 
use whatever language they wanted as long as it sort of had purpose for the genre. And the, the writing, the creativity, the, the ingenuity that arose from this project really blew me, blew us away. Um, we saw students who would have been considered quote unquote struggling writers right. flourish. Right. Um, we saw students share parts of their lives that were tragic, were joyful, were hysterically funny. Um, and it was, I think, because we opened up the process, the language process, the literacy process, the writing process um, to students languaging and, and creativity that just isn't typically uh, brought into um, English language arts classrooms, let alone English language arts classrooms that serve, you know, language minoritized students. Um, and so it was, it was really the kind of teaching experience that gave me an insight into what could be right. and what would it look like in ELA classrooms, in ESL classrooms, if, if that kind of creativity, criticality um, were present all the time. And so I, I think of that teaching experience as one that, that set the course for me. Um, one of many that has set the course for me in the kind of learning that I hope to see uh, in classrooms that serve emerging bilinguals and all language minoritized students. Right. When you shared that story, I thought about, you know what, maybe students are not struggling. That's maybe, mm -hmm. the, right? Because we, we call them, the field calls them struggling students, but really they just maybe, uh, we haven't found a way to help them find their voice. And in your example with Nelson Flores, you let kids find their authentic voice. Yeah, yeah. We, we encourage them to do just that. Um, and to, you know, I, I struggle with this, this idea of voice sometimes because I, I think all students have a voice. I just don't think we know how to hear it as educators. And, you know, so I think this whole concept of, of, of giving voice or finding voice, um, it's on us as educators to listen differently. And I think that's actually really at the heart of translanguaging. To listen differently. I love that. That might be the title of this podcast. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so can you, you just talked about podcast, uh, sorry, you just talked about translanguaging. So I have a question if you could fill out this sentence frame for us. Some people think that translanguaging is, but it really is. So some people think that translanguaging, well, some people think translanguaging is all sorts of things. Um, just translating, scaffolding, just a strategy. Um, you know, the, and I could go on, right? I, I do think that there is um, a lot of misunderstanding of the concept of translanguaging. What translanguaging really is, is it started as theory, that provided a framework for understanding all language, right? Not, this isn't, translanguaging isn't something that like just bilingual people do, right? It's something we all do, um, but we only pay attention when certain people do it. So also inherent to translanguaging is an understanding of language hierarchy. Why some people's language practices are marked as different, 
even if all of us engage in it. Um, you know, and I think that this, this really echoes some of what Ophelia talked about with you in, in your episode with her of the podcast, that in teaching, translanguaging is also a political act. So when it's applied to education, it's, it's an approach that enables teachers to normalize the kind of fluid languaging that we all do all the time um, and leverage that kind of fluidity um, and interconnectedness of students' linguistic repertoires for their learning. I think when, why is, why is instruction political act? And I think it's because when we say this language belongs here and we say that language doesn't belong here, we are so close to saying you don't belong here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, something I say to my students when I'm, you know, teaching methods courses, or I say, you know, language is so much more than just language. And if we don't treat it as such, um, we're not teaching in, in sustaining ways, in ways that really honor our students. So, so yeah, so I think the more that teachers can make help make the classroom look and sound like the families and the communities that our students are learning with and from every day, we're missing opportunities. Right. Now, I didn't ask you this question in the podcast, but would you share what it looks like in your family to change language? Because I know you come from a multicultural family. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I grew up, uh, my, my mother, um, moved to the States from Italy when she was uh, young, she was nine or 10, and um, spoke only Italian at home. Um, and, you know, in the 60s, when my mother moved, the early 60s, um, there was no ESL, there was no, um, you know, especially where she lived in a small town in upstate New York where they moved. And, you know, so, so there, there was really this separation of Italian at home, English at school. And there was really no integration of those worlds for her at all. Um, and so translanguaging in my house meant that there was, you know, an Italian relative on the phone and my mother talking with us, us in English and getting back on the phone or my grandparents who of course only spoke Italian. Um, you know, we would speak to them in English and they would speak back to us in Italian and we would communicate like that. Um, you know, and my mother's sprinkling of Italian sayings. My mother only knows how to do her multiplication tables in Italian this many years later. She's like, it's the way I learned it. Um, and then, so that was my mother and my father who is a lifelong New Yorker, um, but is uh, Jewish, Eastern European Jewish, uh, grew up, um, with parents who spoke the Yiddish that their parents spoke in Brooklyn. Um, my grandfather's parents were Romanian, you know, came and Yiddish speakers. And so anyone who knows a New York Jew knows that Yiddish is part of the vernacular. Um, even for those of us who say we don't speak Yiddish, there is Yiddish just sprinkled through all conversation. Um, particularly with, with New York Jews of a certain age. So, you know, my, my house had some of that cultural influence, some of the Italian cultural influence. Um, and of course the influence of just being in, in New York where there were um, lots of different languages being spoken around me all the time. So um, 
you know, I, I had a lot of those influences and yet my language practices were never considered remarkable. They were never marked as different. Um, in fact, any time anyone in my schooling found out that I had a bilingual mother, um, all, and that, you know, and I didn't really speak any Italian, but any small attempts to speak Italian on my part were lauded, right? What a wonderful thing, right? That I had a little bit of this quote unquote heritage language, right? And yet we denigrate quote unquote heritage speakers of say Spanish in our schools. So, you know, this is where I think not only my, my, my interest in an affinity toward translanguaging, but also my, my thinking around racolinguistic ideologies, um, thinking about how my own language practices as a, as a white middle-class student um, were never marked as something that might negatively impact my education. Uh, no one thought my lack of my understanding of my mother's language was a problem, um, you know, and, and that is because of my racial and my class positioning. And so I think, you know, applying that lens and seeing the, the really different ways that my own home, um, my own schooling, you know, was positioned in, in, in comparison with, the, with that of my students has, has been integral to my understanding of how how education works and how I believe education should be shifted, um, particularly for emergent bilingual students. Right. And you mentioned Spanish and I, as a Vietnamese speaker, I'm like, yes, it's not just about Spanish. They really, this can be applied to any non-English language where in the community where I still remember feeling embarrassed that my mom spoke only Vietnamese. Right? Mm. And I always felt embarrassed that, uh, my, I would go to school and we would quickly be transitioned out of Vietnamese to mm. English, right? Mm. And then now looking back, like great intentions, but yet there are real consequences of not being able to keep my, my Vietnamese in reading and writing. I can speak it, but I can't really write it and read it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think this is the experience of, of many students, you know, and I think, I think it's important that you mentioned good intentions, right? Because I don't don't think teachers typically get into the game to strip students of their home language practices, right? Um, but I do think that part of what it means to be a, a critical educator is thinking beyond our intentions um, and thinking about what kinds of policies implicitly do the things that you're talking about. Because there, there are in, in, implicit policies, but there are also explicit policies. Like me, when I started to teach internationally in the U.S., I thought, of course, teach only English at this Chinese school. And I would have signs of saying we speak English here. I would have elaborate point systems. Right? Mm. And I realized like years, I still remember getting, at that time I was, I was working for my master's, and I emailed my professor and I said, how are you telling us to have kids speak their home language mm. when that doesn't help them develop their English. She's like, trust me, here's the research. 
<laughs> you were cited. Yeah. <laughs> and let them use their home language because it really builds on another language. Right. And, you know, I think it's this idea in, in the book, in the translation classroom book we talk about, which is, you know, this idea of a corriente, right, a, a current of students translanguaging, which is that if you have multilingual students in your classroom, translanguaging is happening anyway, because you can't make meaning without using the tools you have at your disposal. Right, so whether or not we acknowledge it, running through any classroom, even if it's below the surface, is this corriente of students' languages. And you know, I think what we're saying in the book is what possibilities might arise? How might the classroom be elevated and expanded if we make that corriente visible and leverage it for students' learning? Would you then tell us, and let's walk into the book now and talk about the benefits of translanguaging. Yeah. So, so in the book, we talk about sort of four big purposes, right? What translanguaging can do for educators who decide to take it up. The first is supporting students as they engage with texts and content that is complex, that is grade level, right? By enabling them to actually think and, and process and pre-write and work in groups using all of their language practices, they can better meet grade level expectations, engage with complex content and texts. It also provides opportunities for students to develop the kinds of language practices that we expect of them in academic, quote unquote, academic contexts. So, you know, in the book, we talk a lot about how, you know, even if the, the product that you are trying to get students to work toward is rendered in one, you know, sort of quote unquote standard version of one named language. The process can be very expansive, very dynamic uh, linguistically. And that kind of, of, of flexibility in the process enables students to build new language practices and add new language practices to their repertoire. Um, a third purpose is that it makes space for, for students' bilingualism and their bilingual ways of knowing. Um, and this is connected to, to the last purpose, which is that translanguaging really supports students' socio-emotional development and their identities as, as bilingual, as multilingual, as language minoritized people. Um, and so I think, you know, what, what all these purposes work together to say is, you know, by centralizing the, the needs of, of bilingual students, the um, rich language and cultural backgrounds of these students, um, that all of that will will really make the learning process that much richer, that much more successful. Um, you know, because ultimately we want students to be successful in school. And that of course means academically successful, but it also means emerging from the schooling process um, stronger in their identities, um, a critical consciousness is developed and a critical consciousness as, um, you know, bilingual people, multilingual people who traverse different worlds. Right. You yeah. speak to 
as an international teacher, I see this happening all the time, where we have kids in Laos or born in Thai or in Vietnam and Cambodia, and they'll go to an international school where the main language is English. They'll go throughout the grade, they'll go through to graduation, but they can't speak Khmer or they can't write Khmer or Lao or Thai because that has been the system yeah. without uh, explicit intention has caused them to lose their own home language in their home country. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's what, you know, has been called subtractive by, you know, education, which, you know, it, it uh, and you don't have to tell people that you're subtracting their language to subtract their language, right, right. in education. Right. You just right. put in policies, right, that cause them not to engage in the home language, just like uh, English only policies at school. Yeah, that's right. I, really appreciate number two and when you said that when you academic context like my there was like a light bulb moment for me and it was mm -hmm. like ah oh, i'm getting chills just thinking about it because mm -hmm. you're saying like yes we can have students learn a specific language that we're focusing on but that doesn't mean it's the only language they're using to learn that language right you said it's a flexible process yeah it's a, it's a flexible process that's right and i think the more we can you know step away from this idea that you know, frankly, there are, and, and, you know, maybe some of your, your listeners who, you know, have known that I have been critical of concepts like academic language. And, um, and I think it's because, and this is something I've, I actually saw Jonathan Rosa um, say once is that there are many academic languages, right? Like we can't actually purport for there to be one that we can define. And so what we have to sort of think about is what, what are the, the languages that are necessary for the performance on this task? Yes. Right? What is the what are the language practices that are affiliated with this genre? Right back to my my talking about genre in the beginning, is that there are many language practices that are so-called academic. Um, we have to talk with students about purpose about context, about affordances, um, about choices, right? Which is what writers do every day. I think about uh, when I talked to Dr. Philip Garcia, I, th I thought about there is no language. There's one language and that language is communication. And we use different tools. I, I remember you saying that, yeah. Right. And we use different tools to communicate. So for example, like when I when I first went to a, the a market in Lao, I didn't know any Lao, but I use multiple different languages. So that's my hand gestures. I drew pictures. I found a picture on my phone and said, hey, uh, so using multiple different ways for that context. So yeah. I guess it's like saying like, we don't use a, ha a hammer for everything. Yeah. We don't use right. scissors for everything. We use it for the right context. And that's what you're really saying. Like there's a purpose for academic language, but there's also purposes for other different languages. Yes. And I think the more we can point out to teachers that the rigidity that is so baked into the language learning process in schools um, doesn't exist outside of schools very often. So that kind of process you were just talking about, those are the kinds of examples I try to, I try to give teachers, right? So, you know, put yourself in a market in, in a place where they speak a language that you don't. What are you going to do to, to negotiate, to get by? Um, you're going to use all the resources you have at your disposal, 
That's what all of us do all the time to make meaning, to communicate. And we don't allow that in schools. And I think there's a it's a huge detriment if we don't. We basically say if we don't allow kids to use all their linguistic repertoire, we don't allow them. It's kind of like going back to your story in the beginning. Mm-hmm. If we only use one set of language, then those kids who are developing that language, they don't have means to access that. But yeah. if we open the door to say multiple languages, different forms of languages, slang, for example, mm-hmm. then they would be able to more clearly see that be seen in school. I'm thinking about my niece. I mean, like, so right now they're downstairs. I'm in America and I'm visiting them. And so they can fully understand me when I speak Mm. Vietnamese. It's hard for them to communicate back. If I was to say you can only speak uh, Vietnamese to me, I would have lost their relationship with them. Yes. It's very similar to saying to minoritized language, minoritized students, you could only speak this kind of language with us or we're going to grade you down. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I have said this to teachers as well, you know, how many students I've spoken to, you know, emergent bilingual students when I was a teacher, when I worked for the CUNY NYSED project and was in lots of different schools across New York State, how many students, you know, labeled English language learners, emergent bilingual students said that their teachers didn't like them. This This was a running theme in conversations with students. And I guarantee you that if you told their teachers, oh, like this student says you don't like them, they'd be horrified, right? Of course I'd like them. Why would they? But it's because if there is a tone, an energy, overt policies that police students' languaging, you are also policing who they are. And students don't respond well to that. The relationship suffers. Um, and I think, you know, what did we get in the game for as teachers, right? Like, I think most of us would say the people, the relationships, um, the beauty of watching someone learn. Right, right. I mean, I, I guess when I think about just the traditional concept of teaching students language, we can either correct students at every single accent, at every single comma, at every single full stop. and in the end, they're going to say, I'm not going to participate. So, and then they start to look like they're like struggling kids. It's like, no, you've corrected me throughout the whole process. And I no longer feel like I'm heard. Yeah. You've corrected me out of the process. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about, I think the, your trans language framework, was that your, the four parts of your trans language framework? Well, those are, that's what we, what we talk about in the book is the, the benefits, the purposes. Of, of translanguaging. The framework um, essentially connects students' translanguaging performances and teachers' pedagogies, right? And that's the, the corriente I was talking about before is really central because it, it kind of powers this framework. It's what moves this framework. Um, and so in the book, we say that the students' translanguaging, their, trans, uh, their linguistic performances shift the instruction, the assessment, the approach that teachers take. Um, so it's this co-constructed framework where teachers shape the pedag- teachers, um, you know, design pedagogy. They deliver it to students who also shift the pedagogy, which then becomes sort of this iterative circle. Um, it's why we talk a lot about 
this idea of, of the translanguaging stance, which is really one of the strands we talk about in, in teacher's pedagogy, being a juntos or a, a, a together kind of stance is because teachers have to see themselves as juntos or together with their students in the learning process. Teachers learn from students who learn from teachers, right? And so, and, and that's what really drives the classroom. And it's it's the languaging of students that, that really drives the instruction and the assessment. Right, so we think about, okay, how can students use their home language or different versions of their language to access text, to work with each other, to show they understand, to produce a product. And so that's what you're saying. You're not just saying, okay, I have English. I want kids to understand this version of English. So we're limiting them. And we're saying, okay, now, so this kid is from China. He understands Chinese. How can I now shape instruction to help him access, for example, photosynthesis, right? Mm. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and this is something Ophelia always says is it doesn't make any sense not to use the tools that are at students disposable disposal. Like why as teachers would we um, limit ourselves and our students literally just taking tools off the table? Like every good teacher knows you need every single tool you can find to, to make the classroom work. And we're essentially, if you are not tapping into students' languaging right. um, and linguistic resources, you are you are taking out the biggest tool that right. that they have at their disposal already. Right. When I learned about your translanguaging stance, I think about it as an uh, one branch of asset-based instruction. Yeah. We see what kids can bring instead of saying, "Oh no, uh, you're not enough." And that's why we we talk about using students' home language, and when we see it as a benefit, it becomes part of our practice. Yeah, yeah. and I think, you know, I, I as, as we're talking, you know, I'm thinking to myself, a lot, this is not a new concept, right? Everything that we're talking about. Yes. I think the, the part of translanguaging that is new, that does push teachers in new ways, is to also encourage teachers to really push against the the idea of language separation yes. at all yes. the idea of a standard version of a language critiquing the existence of that at all the the the, the dissolving of hierarchies among languages um, that's where that political act comes in because i think you know People have been saying for decades, you know, let students use their their home languages in the classroom. Um, but I do think it has often been still in the service of the dominant language. Yes. Um, there are versions of that home language we think are helpful to students learning and versions we think are not helpful to students learning. And I think, you know, translanguaging is is really attempting to dissolve those hierarchies um, and really bring ideologies about language to the surface, particularly for teachers. Right. I I I feel like this is going to be another part of teaching therapy for me. You you said that there is a version of home languaging that serves and home language that doesn't. I also I feel like you just like poked me a little bit. You're like, 
Listen, we can't just use home language to serve the dominant language. And I yeah. just so appreciate that. Would you talk to us more about that um, home language that serves and home language that doesn't concept? Yeah. Um, so I have actually a, a, a fairly recent article that I published in TESOL Quarterly um, critiques the concept of home and school languages, period, right? Which is this idea that we cannot... It is, um, we can because we do, but we, it is disingenuous to um, limit one kind of languaging to a physical space. Yeah. And, and you know, that these are, these are false, um, it's a false dichotomy, this homeschool language right. uh, idea. You know, there are students who come into school and say, oh, I, I, you know, the language I speak at home, that's actually school language or the language I speak here at school, that's home language. You know, like this idea that students actually have a much more expansive understanding of their languaging um, in schools and at home and everywhere uh, than we than we do as their as their educators. So I will that's my caveat about talking about home language is that, you know, I, 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 I call into question um, anyway. But I do think when, you know, I think about different different versions, say, of one language, right? I think about how when I worked in New York City, um, that most of my students were from the, the Dominican Republic yes. and Puerto Rico. Yes. And these are Spanishes that are very denigrated yes. in the Spanish-speaking world, right, in a lot of ways. And so when students would speak Spanish in classrooms, a lot of Spanish speaking teachers might say like, well, they're not really speaking Spanish, right? So, so that home language is actually like so flawed anyway, I'm putting air quotes obviously around flawed, that it, it's not really gonna help them because it's not academic Spanish. Right. Right. And so I think this idea of which home language practices is we we sort of, you know, th say that, you know, in order for it to be helpful, students need to read and write in that home language. Right. They need to know academic registers of that home language or else it's not seen as useful right. Um, right. to their learning of a dominant language. Right. Right? right. And so I think, you know, a question I get so often from teachers is, well, my students, and you alluded to this, my students can't read or write their home language. And so we're already saying that students who can't, and I won't even go into what it means when teachers say that students can't read or write in a language, I think that's probably not true. Um, but what they're talking about is in academic, quote unquote, academic ways. Right. So it's just one more way of policing students' languaging is by saying that even their home language practices are not useful right. in the classroom. And so I think, you know, it's that kind of, of looking at our own ideologies, like what would be enough for, for these students to, 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 to meet the bar? Right. You know, the, the bar just keeps shifting, I think, for language minoritized students. I, I just keep shaking my head as you're talking because I'm like, oh my goodness, Han, what are you doing? You need to change your own practice. So this is like another teach. I feel like almost every single podcast is like a teaching therapy for Tan, right? <laughs> yeah, well, for everybody, you know, I mean, these are these are um, 
for me, gosh, I mean, the, these are the ways that so many of us have not just been taught to teach, taught how to think about language in the world. So there's a lot of unlearning right. um, when it comes to taking up translanguaging as a lens. Right. Because I used to, and I'm, I still, you just blew my mind away because you just said, let's, let's just question the concept of home language. And the simple, the simple act of putting the word home, who, who puts that in there? Oh, it's yeah. teachers, it's schools. And now that simply was putting the word home in front of a language, we have mm -hmm. now separated it. Yes. Physicality. Right. I never that's thought about that. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, the more, you know, ideology just, it begins to crumble the second you hold it up to a, to a light, right? Which is that like, oh, huh. So they actually do speak a lot of, what I'm calling their home language in school, huh? So what do we call it now? You know, it's because these are false, <laughs> these are invented, constructed categories that we have tried to fit students' language practices into. And very often they don't fit because these boxes were, or these categories, these, these bounded categories were imposed upon their languages right. and language practices. Right. Um, they weren't created from from the language practices of minoritized people. I feel like we can go on and on and on. I'm sure we would love to have like Dr. Cummings on to talk to you about this. And so um, let's move on to the last 10 minutes to talk okay. about what this looks like in instruction wise. So can you talk us about lang uh, translanguaging design and instruction and, and how is it not just translating? Sure. So when we talk about translanguaging design, of course, we're always first to say that a translanguaging design emerges from a stance, right? So you 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 cannot engage in a translanguaging pedagogy without that stance. And a design emerges because your stance tells you that students' language practices are juntos and not separated, that their families and communities are juntos in the learning process, not separate. You know, that you and your students are juntos in the learning process too, right? You're together. And so a design honors that stance and is committed to creating instruction and assessment that helps you to listen better, helps you to perceive differently. Um, and so, you know, we talk about uh, translanguaging design for the classroom space. Um, what's up on your walls? You know, what kinds of books are in your library? How are your desks organized? You know, these are, these are all design choices that relate to the kinds of languaging you want to occur in your classroom. Um, and some, and we talk a lot about what, what we call a multilingual ecology, right? Are the languages of your students visible, audible, palpable? Um, you know, is there, are there resources at students' disposal for them to use on their own terms, right? These are all design choices in, in the classroom space. We talk about a translanguaging design for instruction. And we offer a lot of tools in the book. We offer what we call a translanguaging design cycle, which is sort of a an inquiry-based approach to designing units, lessons, um, you know, instruction of all kinds. And there, we also have a translanguaging design for assessment, which is how do you leverage students' general linguistic performances, right? What they can do using all of their language practices. Um, as well as their language specific performances. What can they do in just the language of instruction, for example? 
right? And that you need both those performances in order to assess students. So we have, you know, designs for the classroom space, designs for instruction, designs for assessment. And what all of this is meant to do is to bring tra the translanguage in Corriente to the surface of the classroom and leverage it for learning. Right. I love thinking about the room, the instruction, mm -hmm. and the assessment. And I think about uh, Dr. Margot Gottlieb just wrote a book about um, multilingual assessments. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you're speaking to that. You're saying, yes, they're going to have to perform in English, but the way they get there on the assessment is going to be multilingual. Yes. And that, you know, we don't have enough tools to, to really measure what students are doing um, through their translanguaging. Um, we, we just, because assessments are monoglossic, um uh entities right they, they are meant to be to assess only students one language but a translanguaging lens says there is no such thing all of our language practices are interconnected part of one complex linguistic repertoire so yes of course we can we can measure students language specific performances right what they can do in just one named language but it doesn't tell the whole story. So yes. you also have to have some kind of an assessment process right. for what they can do when they have all of their tools at their disposal. Right. right. I think the analogy that I'm making is that teachers are familiar with like teacher observation. When mm -hmm. a principal comes in and watches for just a day or just a period, that can't be representative of the entire school year. Right. Right. And, right. and one language an assessment cannot be representative of what kids, kids can do with all of their languages. Yeah. You know, I, I just think, again, we have to think about ourselves, right? If, if someone were assessing you right. and your intelligence and your abilities based only on a language that you are learning, they would never know how smart you were. They would never know what you could do you know, unless we open up the process to, well, let me just like, you know, check my phone for this one word that I'm looking for, you know, right? Or let me talk to somebody first in my home language and then talk to you again in, in English, you know, for example. So I think, you know, we just have to think of ourselves and our own learning processes and the ways that our, I, that we feel as people when we're learning a new language. Um, you know, in language learning experiences, I've had like, you start to be like, well, oh gosh, maybe I'm not funny, right? I kind of thought I was funny, but in this new language, no one thinks I'm funny, right? Like, because I haven't, like, I haven't learned how to yet be funny in this new language, right? And so, you know, I think we need to just think about what what are we robbing students of when we limit assessments of, of what they know and can do to just one named language. Right. So this means we, how are we seeing them in different ways? If they're only doing it in one name language, does this mean we only see them in one way? Yeah. Right. And this often happens with English learners. We only see them in a limited perspective because they're only able to show us in standard English. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you or what we're, what we're calling standard English. What we're yeah. calling quote unquote yeah. standard English. Right? Yeah. Would you uh, talk to us about just a little bit more about the instruction cycle for the inquiry based learning part? Sure. So we have sort of a, a, a cycle that, that I think looks a lot like a lot of inquiry cycles, right? Where there's sort of a, 
an exploring phase. There's a, there's, um, you know, it starts with, it's all, when we read, started the book, we really had as sort of the, the audience for the book, um, Latinx, Spanish speaking, emergent bilinguals. The book has sort of had sort of expanded from that and the way we use it is much more expansive, but because in the States, by far the largest, you know, um, language group who are who are labeled English language learners or Spanish speakers. Right. So we we use a lot of Spanish in the book, you know, also Ophelia and Susana are Spanish speakers are bilingual. Um, and so we have the design cycle, which utilizes um, some Spanish. So we have explorar, which is um, to explore. Um, um, and, and it goes through all the way sort of like looking at exp from exploring to critiquing what is there, what isn't there, you know, of a topic, what voices do we hear in reading about this topic, which ones don't we hear, how could we as students lend new insights into this topic, then there's a reading process, there's a, that's where all of your content comes in, right, teaching students new things, but it's always working toward a big culminating design, right, some kind of design that students create and is implementar, the, the end result is doing something with it, right? Doing something, it's a, it's a presentation, is it a um, conversation with the school community? Does it extend past the four walls of the classroom, right? So it's, it's and then of course, hopefully from that implementar phase where students are doing something with their learning leads to more learning and you're explorar again. Right, you're at Explorer. Yeah. I just love the way that you're translanguaging with your <laughs> the, the the whole phrase, the whole like cycle yeah. is also translanguaging, like explorar. Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's end the podcast with this. I mean, I could go on for like hours. <laughs> it's so fun talking to you. I could too. Let's end with the traffic light teaching, a red light. What would you ask teachers to stop doing? A yellow light is what do you ask you to teachers to start doing, like when we get to a yellow light, we start slowing down. And then a green light, what is something we should continue doing in terms of translanguaging? So I think it goes without saying for me that a red light, something we should stop doing immediately, is policing students' languaging, either explicitly or implicitly. So I think we need to look very critically at language policies that separate students' languages, um, be that an English-only policy or a you know dual language bilingual policy that says Spanish on these days and English on those days only. Right. So these are these are language allocation policies that I think need to be very critically examined um, and and made more flexible. And I think you know the more we can stop saying to students this language here this language there or don't use your languages other than english for example in the classroom um the the more we open up space for exploration and and creativity so i would say certainly stop any kind of policy and this is where i think teachers need to be introspective too which is and you alluded to this yourself, like, are there things I'm doing without even knowing it that still result in a policing of my students' languaging? So I think that that's a, that's a big red light. Um, the yellow light, 
and and you said this is sort of something where we should slow down right where yes. we where we need to, right and i think that's where that's where i think listening differently comes in slowing down listening differently asking yourself different questions about your students and your students languaging um you know i would i would often find i would get amazing insights into my students when i was sitting in the back of the room and they were eating lunch right or having conversations where i wasn't really i wasn't really there right and the 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 humor the language play the language sharing that would go on you know from students across linguistic backgrounds in my classroom um i would just hear different things and those shaped my stance and you know i think if we slow down if we take ourselves a little bit out of these rigid ideologies about language um we'll hear and feel and sense different things about our students so i think the more we can think critically about the ideologies we all have about language and maybe start questioning them um that slowing down process and not sort of barreling ahead with common sense notions of of what an emergent bilingual can and can't do the more we'll see um and then as far as things i think we should do full speed ahead you know green light um is designing opportunities yes. that get students talking about language itself the most so my own research you know has very much been in what happens when you make language itself an object of of study right language and its connections to power language and its connections to our identity um and what came up for students for for the students I worked with was just so incredible and gave me so many insights has shaped my own scholarship so much and I think people in general love to talk about language it fascinates us right Betsy Rhymes calls so many people on YouTube citizen sociolinguists right this is a this is like a pastime for many of us right all all you have to do is um go on social media and see the incredible things that people do around language with language. Um, and so I think the more we can get students talking about language, get students to see connections across languages, get students inquiring into how they language with their families and what that says about their families, how an author is making different linguistic choices. Um, you know, the more language becomes a, 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 a a thing in the classroom that is talked about. You know, I think for all of our language teaching, we rarely talk about language. Um, and so I think the more we can do that, um, the the more really amazing things will, will come to the surface, not just students' language practices and their translanguaging, that corriente coming to the surface, but also their really sophisticated understandings about how language functions in our society. And that's where we get to start questioning our own deep-seated racio-linguistic ideologies even more because they will point them out to us. Right. And that's the, your last green light. Your last light is connected to the, the cycle, the instructional cycle, when Absolutely. we explore that. Well, I want to end this podcast with Juntos. 
you have together have helped us listen differently in this podcast. And together, you're going to help us teach differently. So I am so grateful for your leadership and your wisdom and your sage advice. So thank you so much, Dr. Seltzer. Thank you so much. Thank you for those kind words. It means so much. And, and thank you for having me. This is such a such a great opportunity to, to have a, a conversation with who I, someone I know is a committed educator of emergent bilinguals. So thank you, Tan. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. I think one of the greatest gifts that teachers can share with students is to help them see the world differently. Dr. Kate Seltzer did exactly that in this episode. She helped me think differently about using the term home language and how we can actually cause an artificial separation between home and the school. The second thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is how we need to have more conversations about language and not only teach language. I now understand why translanguaging is not a strategy, but an approach to teaching. It's a stance. It's how we see students for their assets and their ways of being. I also think Kate's lesson cycle helps us do exactly that, where we use languages to learn, use languages to create and collaborate, and use languages to connect to the greater world. No wonder this text is canon in our field. It has helped us expand our understanding of language. Thank you, Dr. Kate Souser, for helping us listen differently. In the next episode, we talk to Principal Mel Taylor, who helps us understand what cultural responsive teaching looks like at the principal level. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching Tweeted me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.